This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Boris Johnson's going to war, but at least this time not on his own MPs. He's announcing uh, an extra £16 billion for defence. But is this a good idea? Where do the threats come from? And should we be worried about autonomous military robots rising up against us? I've been speaking to Sir David Liddington, former cabinet minister, now head of the Rusi defence think tank. He'll tell us where the threats are coming from and whether or not we should be worried about the robots rising up against us. Uh, but first, uh, it's our columnist panel. So uh, it's Thursday. So we kick off with Robert Crampton and Esther Webber. So, what to do about Jeremy Corbyn? I think we had, uh, you were on, Robert, was it a couple, two or three weeks ago when that report yeah. came out? It only just, it only just it came was, out about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Yeah, it was three, three weeks ago, the, the uh, East Equality and Human Rights Commission, yeah. And it's now, yeah. uh, you know, he was suspended from the Labour Party for uh, suggesting 19, that... 19 days, yeah. The, num- the number of the cases have been ex- exaggerated uh, for political mm. purposes. Uh, and then this week, the National Executive Committee of the Labour Party let him back in as a Labour Party member, but um, Keir Starmer won't let him in uh, mm. back as a Labour MP. He's obviously tried to draw a line under it, but it, it doesn't feel like a route that's going to go away. No, not, not, nor should it. Uh, I mean, Starmer needs to take on the NEC now, I think. Uh, he's, I mean, the, the readmission has been expedited far more quickly than it should have been. There's a case, there's a sexual harassment case with Esther Wood know more about than me, but it's a sexual harassment case that's been waiting for three years, I think. Uh, and yeah. he gets he gets his hearing in 19 days and gets readmitted with a slap on the wrist and a minimum punishment, uh, which is, I mean, it's back to square one. I mean, Starmer said that he's, he's, he's the first thing he wants to do was to reassure the Jewish community that, that anti-Semitism was not rife in the Labour Party, and he signally failed to do that. Uh if he if he if he accepts the NEC decision, he needs to he needs to have a showdown about this. It's a good subject to have a showdown yeah. on, and he and he needs to take them on. And I suppose um, Esther, the the there's obviously the issue of anti-Semitism, uh, which is absolutely crucial to uh, Keir Starmer showing that he's moved the Labour Party on. But to people who just didn't like the idea of Jeremy Corbyn leading the Labour Party, wouldn't vote for Labour while he was there. Actually, Keir Starmer having a big ding dong about ki- keeping him out of the Labour Party is quite good politically, isn't it? Yeah, it kind of um, shows he he means business. Um, 
he he said he was aware he would be judged by his actions rather than his words. Um, and that's the kind of guiding philosophy here that, okay, we've heard enough of kind of warm words about sorting these problems out. And um, he, he did take quite strong action yesterday. And, you know, for all the... Um, talk we heard from him particularly during the leadership campaign if anyone can remember that far back <laughs> he was talking about uniting the party and it just doesn't really seem like that is possible right now and he had to pick a side and he's chosen to monumentally annoy the left of the party and that is the battle he's going to have yeah, and I, um, I was struck, there was some YouGov poll, and they sort of did a snap poll yesterday asking, was he right not to reinstate Jeremy Corbyn as a Labour MP? 50% of people said he was right, 21% said he was wrong, and the West didn't know. Interestingly, amongst Tory and Lib Dem voters, far more uh, said he was right, but only 38% of Labour voters said he was right, 32% wrong. So it's all sort of slightly dividing down on um, uh, party lines on this, but then I suppose, uh, Robert, what Keir Starmer needs is people who voted Tory last time rather than people who voted Labour. Although he, yes, he does. I mean, well. that, 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 that poll worried me slightly. There's only 38% of Labour members think uh, he was right to, to readmit him, uh, or to allow his readmission. That worries me, but yes, it's the it's the it's the uh, it's the other people. I mean, that won't presumably influence their vote, whereas uh. For floating voters, undecided, uh, I think this. I think this. This will be an issue. It's a. It's a question of. Uh, it's not. A, it's not a Westminster bubble story. I don't think it's a story about the soul of the Labour Party. And as I said three weeks ago, it's an absolute entry level requirement for a, a, any political party, particularly perhaps the Labour Party, uh, to not discriminate against people. Uh, and to let Corbyn back it. I mean, he said. Three weeks ago, that he thought the, the the whole business had been overstated, and now three weeks later, just in order to get back in, he says it's not overstated. I mean, you kind of know <laughs> what he believes, uh, uh, and there's uniting the party, but there's also leading the party, and that's what Starmer has to do. And if that means upsetting some unpleasant people who think that a bit of anti-Semitism is okay, then so be it. And uh, yeah, I suppose it, it, you know every leader sort of looks at what became known as the clause four moment when Tony Blair yep. changed the, the the Labour constitution. But a big, a big thing which signals, as Keir Starmer likes to say, we're under new management. Um, uh, Keir, uh, Jeremy Corbyn seems to have handed it to him. Uh, so just explain what this actually means in practice about having the whip. Ray Ray's just messaged in saying Jeremy Corbyn should have the whip back. Then he could do what he always does and just ignore it. Um, so <laughs> uh, what does it mean to have the Labour whip? Yeah, it, it is. It is a fair point that. Um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn has never set great store by voting with his party before he became leader. Um, but it it means he he will officially sit as an independent within Parliament, and he can't uh, be part of kind of party meetings or discussions. Um, and he's not formally included in all those kind of resources and access um, to the party that would normally be his entitlement as a Labour MP. 
Uh, I, and, and do you think uh, this will um, have a long-term impact, uh, Robert, in terms of the politics? And, you know, because on the one hand, uh, Keir Starmer's um, showing some leadership, some would say, and he's distancing himself from the previous uh, regime. But on the other hand, divided parties tend not to win elections. Uh, that's true. So he needs to unite it. But uniting it might mean some people having to leave. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's coming that, that yeah, in a way, he'd probably rather have this fight now in quite yeah. an early stage of the parliament um, than in two or three years' time when we're talking about an election again. And is it is it possible, Esther, that uh, if this does drag on all the way to the next election, that Jeremy Corbyn then w- he, he won't be able to stand, would he, as a Labour MP? Uh, I, I think that's right, yes. Um, and I mean, that would be a, a change in Islington North. It'd be interesting <laughs> to see if he actually takes anyone with him because so far we've heard a lot of kind of fire and brimstone from his supporters, but no one's actually kind of throwing in the towel to go with him apart from one former Labour MP who only the most kind of political geeks will <laughs> will remember. Um, so remind, just remind us of her name because I must admit when I, when I saw um, this story even I'd forgotten sorry. that she was an MP <laughs> sorry that would be I can't believe that that would be Thelma Walker of course, oh, of course. Uh, as everyone knows oh, yes. who, who used to be an aide to John McDonald when he was the shadow chancellor so she said last night she was quitting the party um, because she was so upset about what's happened. Um, so it hasn't really brought out the the big names, as you might say, um, but it could be they're keeping their powder dry for now, deciding what to do next. Think, and the I big think, question will you, be about sorry, Matt, if you um, were a sensi- if you were Len kind of McCluskey, sensible... I think. Sorry. Sorry. Sorry, Esther, I interrupted you. No, go, go on, Robert. Uh if you were a sensible kind of thinking member of the of the so-called hard left, say if you were John McDonald, for instance, you would not want to have this battle, would you? Because what do you you, you end up defending anti-Semitism? So that's precisely why Starmer should have this battle. Yeah, and actually, that was one of the things that, that, that John McDonald and Corbyn did fall out about during their yes. during their. Uh, leadership was was the failure to tackle um, uh, anti-Semitism. Um, I think you're right. I, mean, I think Esther, you're being a little bit harsh on uh, Jeremy Corbyn's supporters. I mean, they've had a they've got a petition and a Twitter storm. So I mean, they're they're really pulling out oh, all the sorry. stops. Uh, to sorry, yeah, and they might have an <laughs> online rally or something as well. Yeah, and a, a certain number Excuse of MPs me. have also pitched in, haven't they? Yeah, 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 and they've written a letter as well. So that's that's yeah. really there's no way yeah. that Keir Starmer could come back from this. Uh, right, Esther, let's talk about the story which is on uh, page two of the Times today. The number of people contacting Parliament's bullying, harassment, and sexual sexual misconduct helplines fell by more than half during the lockdown uh, in the spring, according yeah. to new official figures. What have you found out? Um, so there is now an independent uh, complaint system in Parliament which people who work there can use um, if they feel they're being subjected to any kind of inappropriate or bullying behaviour. And um, what these figures that were released yesterday show is that the number of people contacting the helpline 
uh, fell dramatically during the height of the national lockdown in the spring. Um, and on one level, that kind of seems intuitive, doesn't it? If you're not in the office, it's less likely you're going to be subject to bullying behaviour by your boss. Um, but it's quite a big fall, and that kind of is actually fell by more than half. And that kind of showed how maybe how intense. Uh, intensely the problem is associated with actually working in Parliament and working in MPs' offices. Uh, do you think, I mean, we've talked a lot about how uh, coronavirus and the lockdown has, has changed uh, the way we live and the way we work. Do you think this might have a permanent impact on uh, the culture in Westminster? Um, I I think it's possible, yeah. I think um, more so than any other workplace and possibly for understandable reasons, there is a kind of adulation around the actual building of Parliament and people set a lot of store in the importance of being there. And maybe this has shown it can be a bit more flexible and impossible for staff in particular so not necessarily MPs but definitely for staff to work in different ways. On the other hand I've also heard from uh, some staff members who say their bosses have gone completely the other way and because they've maybe got a bit more time they've done nothing but kind of pester their staff and, and get on their case uh, so I think it can cut both ways um, but yeah I think a little Sorry. less kind of reverence around the building is probably not a bad thing Yeah, Robert. It shows it must be a really toxic place to work where in order to avoid being bullied, you you, don't, you have to not go there. <laughs> I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, and it's fallen yeah. from 80, 87 complaints to 38, but 38 is still a hell of a lot. I mean, I think somebody made the point on your Twitter feed that if that was any other organisation, there'd be you know, there'd be serious repercussions. There'd be a, you'd think that was a really dysfunctional company, wouldn't you? Uh, and... Yeah, I mean, well, it's the other thing was in this report is that nine complaints were upheld last year mm. but under the rules we won't know what any of them are um yeah. <laughs> that was news to me i mean slightly mad system what do you, what yeah. what in your experience what what's a, what sort of complaints i mean you, you say you don't know what they are but you must have you must hear rumors what what sort of complaints okay. are made well i I should say that um, the figures they release are about all of staff working in Parliament, so we don't necessarily know these are complaints against MPs. They could be mm -hmm. other members of staff, but I would guess a few of them are. And it tends to be, the vast majority tend to be bullying, so it tends to be very kind of intense workloads uh, put on staff, but then all, all augmented by demanding an unreasonable behaviour, which has caused quite bad mental health problems for some people involved. Because I think everyone expects working in Parliament 
to be stressful. Uh, but there's a limit to these things. So that's the majority of cases. And then we've also had a small minority of sexual harassment cases, uh, which tend to be more serious, but also more difficult to prove. Um, yeah. So yeah. that's kind of what we typically hear about. And Esther, there's a um, there's a vow, isn't there, this week about uh, MPs appearing uh, via Zoom. Ironically, we're giving yes. the Prime Minister is one of the most yeah. prominent. He was at PMQs yesterday for the first time. Uh, <laughs> um, you can listen to us uh, uh, picking that apart on the Red Box podcast. But um, uh, what is the latest on the row with between uh, MPs and uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg? Yeah, so in a way, PMQs yesterday was quite a good... Um, a shop window for the way virtual parliament has been working, it showed that it is possible to carry on with business uh, while the Prime Minister is self-isolating. Um, but I don't know, your listeners will probably remember that last year, last week, sorry, there was a big um, <laughs> It feels like a year. About... <laughs> <laughs> it feels like Feels like last year, um, there was a big outcry about Tracy Crouch, who is a Conservative MP, who's being treated for breast cancer at the moment, and she wasn't able to attend, or sorry, to virtually attend and speak in a debate on cancer, which obviously seems mad. Um, because MPs aren't currently allowed to make speeches virtually. They can only ask questions. Um, and Jacob Rees-Mogg has said he's going to change this, um, which I think everyone has welcomed. But he's only changing it for the extremely vulnerable category, um, and the MPs are already upset about this. He got quite um, a hammering, actually, earlier this week from uh, MPs in his own party, some of whom have vulnerable family members, uh, and this won't apply to them. Uh, and also they're upset about the fact that it would mean basically people have to declare that they fall into that category um so it's a potential privacy issue as well um so we can see that <laughs> despite the fact this has gone on for whatever it is six months five years or however <laughs> long it feels uh jacob Rethog hasn't quite got it right yet so i think this one will run and run uh, just finally, uh, Robert, um, there's this uh, ongoing, rumbling and increasingly complicated story about the BBC uh, and uh, Diana, Princess of Wales, and her interview yeah. with Martin Bashir. Prince William now wading in, uh, saying he thinks that the, uh, having the investigation into allegations of forgery, deceit and cover-up uh, was at least a step in the right direction. Yeah, it is a step in the right direction. Another step in the right direction would be not to employ Martin Bashir any longer. Uh, I can't understand why he still works there. It just seems odd, given the, the. I mean, just, the, the bit that I'm, I, I struggle with sometimes is is um, all what all of the bits are. You know, there's so many parts of this story that by the time you've got all the background in, you haven't got any space for the new line. Um, uh, but I mean, it's it's basically how Martin Bashir managed to persuade Diana to do this, this that famous panorama interview. 
Yes, it is. Yeah, but but through getting a guy to forge a uh, well, telling a whole load of lies about, uh, uh, but basically kind of feeding on her her uh, paranoia about the rest of the royal family and uh, telling her a lot of lies about uh, her being spied on and so forth and various kind of tittle tattle about uh, nannies and so forth. Uh, but principally by getting a guy to forge uh, some bank statements, which indicated that people were being uh, paid off, I think, to spy on her. Uh, wholly disreputable. I mean, if he, if he, well, if he worked for the Times, first of all, he wouldn't do that. But if he had done it, he would be sacked long ago. Yeah, and probably uh, not. Probably not invited back as religious affairs editor or whatever. Um, yeah, so it's um, it's uh, Lord uh, Dyson, who's uh, uh, one of the country's most senior retired judges, has been yeah. appointed by the BBC to uh, lead uh, the inquiry. You can read more about the Times. Uh, co. uk uh, right now. Robert Crampton and Esther Webber there. Don't forget, you can read them both. They both write for the Times uh, throughout the week. Esther obviously writes the Red Box Morning email. You can sign up to the Times right now. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box, where you can currently get a month free subscription if you sign up right now. Up next, I speak to Sir David Lillington about the rise of military robots. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box podcast now. Uh, Boris Johnson's pledged to end Britain's era of retreat with the largest investment in the military since the Cold War and plans for a new space command and artificial intelligence agency. He's... Announced a four-year funding settlement for the Ministry of Defence worth an extra sixteen and a half billion pounds. There's lots of talk of cyber wars and space wars and robots, but is it all a good idea? So David Lillington is a former Conservative cabinet minister. He was de facto Deputy Prime Minister to Theresa May. He's now chairman of the Royal United Services Institute, or RUSI, as it's known, the world's oldest independent think tank on international defence and security. I've been speaking to him about all this money that Boris Johnson's found for the military, and I began by asking, is it a good idea? Yes, I think it's a good idea. The reason I'm, I'm only slightly hesitant about it is that, of course, what we're not going to get today is the um, the detail of the government's integrated review of our international interests and, and security needs, and then how defence, as well as other 
um, sort of areas of power that we can exercise in, in the world contributes to that. And we'll have a, a clearer idea of the strategic analysis that lies behind today's announcement when the integrated review comes out, which seems likely to be early in the new year. But I know the guys at um, number 10 who have been working on the integrated review. The, these are people like John View who have been serious specialists in security and strategic studies know the stuff, uh, are, are not going to have the wool pulled over their eyes by um, lobbyists from different government departments or, or, or outside. They're going to have a hard-headed look at the UK's global interests uh, in the 21st century. So I'm reasonably confident that we'll get a, a the sort of picture we need of the UK's interests and then how defence and diplomacy and soft power of various kinds all fit into our need to sustain and defend those those interests. But today, yeah, it's it's good news. For this reason, um, we face different challenges. The the world is multipolar now. It's not a, an American hegemony. It's a more dangerous place. We are we're subject to threats from both potentially hostile states and from non-state actors, from international terrorist groups, from serious and organised criminal networks of various kinds that are every bit as professional as legitimate multinational businesses. Uh, and we're dealing with the impact on security, as well as everything else, of new technology, uh, the internet, of AI, of robotics, of miniaturisation. And so what our, our defence services need to do is to beef up our capabilities in those new areas and invest in research and development and then implementation of those capabilities and not but not run down our existing assets while we build up those new areas of power and expertise. So when it's this difficult transitional phase where you don't want to let your guard down with what you have already, but you need to spend more to develop the new technologies and then your emphasis starts to change uh, as, as the new technologies come on stream. So, yeah, it seems to me that it, it, it's a sensible decision. And I, I hope, too, that it will be a powerful signal to the incoming Biden administration in Washington that the UK takes seriously uh, the American expectation that European countries, including us, will do more to contribute to the security of the transatlantic alliance as a whole. Uh, there's lots of talk about drones and cyber technology and artificial intelligence uh, rather than sort of tanks and guns and ships, which is the sort of normal thing we expect from um, uh, defence spending. Uh, you know, ministers like to go and point at big grey things that they've spent a lot of money on. Um, so, so for people listening to this, what are the threats that we face? Where do they come from? Uh, which, and how would they affect listeners' lives? Um, we, we face threats from states from potentially from countries like Russia, perhaps in the future from from China. I don't think China's not going to attack the United Kingdom, but uh, China's power potentially to uh, disrupt freedom of navigation through oceans that are really important to UK trade, uh, potential risk to our submarine uh, cables that uh, Link, link, link our telecommunications and our IT systems on so so on which so much of our society depends, and then uh, potentially hostile states, but also very expert professional criminal gangs, have increasing interest in cyber power. So 
we used to think of our critical national infrastructure as things like dams and power plants and so on, physical buildings that you need to defend uh, against uh, attack from, from land or from, from, from the air. Now, so much of our critical infrastructure is about IT systems um, that, that we use um, systems and robots to control much of our transport arrangements, our health arrangements, our power generation and distribution arrangements. And so and we've seen in different parts of the world the impact on the lives of your listeners on Times Radio if, say, uh, the, the IT system goes down, suddenly the lights go out. Or suddenly, as when the NHS was subjected to the, the WannaCry uh, so computer uh, virus attack about three years ago, suddenly our hospitals stopped being able to operate properly because uh, the, our NHS workers could not get access to the data about patient records or who was booked for appointments and so on. So cyber security is an increasingly important element in our defence arrangements. And given your and it, um, and given your time in government, how secure is, I mean, like you said, the, the NHS one is the, the most uh, obvious example in recent years, but how secure is the way that government and Whitehall does IT? I mean, you know, we heard, you know, in a slightly different context, but earlier in the summer, the, the um, totting up the number of coronavirus cases fell over because they were using an old version of Excel. This doesn't feel like a 21st, you know, a country with 21st century secure IT systems. Um, uh, to protect ourselves from from those sorts of attacks. Yeah, yeah and I, when I when I was in the cabinet office in my last government job, I you know I I sort of spent quite a bit of time looking into this. And yes, the the British state um, has lagged too far behind best practice in its own cyber security arrangements. Now that is changing, and uh, for example, the creation of the National Cyber Security Centre that's a public facing offshoot of GCHQ, making their expertise available to both uh, the civil service and local government, but to the private sectors uh, and charities as well, has been really important in helping to drive up standards. I introduced when I was in government a a new rule that, that said that we're going to have to have the main government contractors, the private companies who work for government, in, insisting on uh, a given level of cyber security throughout their supply chains in future. We couldn't simply take it in tr on, on trust. It had to be written into contract. So and I think departments in government are raising their game. But you know, yeah, there's a long, a long tail here. And I think this is something that ministers and permanent secretaries, the civil service bosses, um, really need to make sure is on their agenda. And I, I, my, in my view, there should be a director on each of the boards um, that uh, govern the affairs of government departments who is explicitly responsible for cybersecurity matters. You, you can't any longer separate our international security risks from our domestic security risks. The internet enables criminals and hostile states to act right across national frontiers you know, to reach into your territory through your your exposure in in, in various networks 
And uh, one of the things I was I was struck at l- reading the, the the coverage this morning about what the prime minister was announcing is if you if you look at what the public think, um, uh, you know, you gov polling asking people about uh, what the government spends money on. A quarter say the government spends too much on defence. That's second only to foreign aid. Um, you know, the prime minister is talking today about uh, this is a chance to end the era of retreat. Um, but actually, the, the era of retreat came after you know Iraq and Afghanistan, and Brit- the British public became becoming wary of. Britain, you know, getting involved in military conflict and, and, and that sort of thing. So how, how can the Prime Minister sell this? £16 billion is such a phenomenal amount of money. You know, we're in, in an um, economic crisis. Uh, other departments being told that they uh, aren't going to have uh, the money. Why how, Why should people think this is a good idea to spend this money? Uh, and, and the risk that this looks a bit like, oh, Britain wants to, you know, start interfering in things around the world again. Yeah. I, I think that's why I think it's so important that we get the... Uh, the, the conclusions of the integrated review of security out as soon as possible, because I think that will provide the evidence and the narrative to set today's defence spending announcement in the broader security policy context and, and enable us to talk about it as well as diplomacy, as well as information uh, and, and economic uh, conflicts, as well as development aid and so on. So you see everything in the round. But I think the Prime Minister can make some very powerful points. He can say that the, the 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 number of threats to us and our interests around the world is increasing. We've seen how North Korea, for example, is developing not just a nuclear weapons program, but uh, very long range um, missile delivery systems. Uh, and that sort of technology uh, on nuclear, God forbid, but biological, chemical warfare, we saw what happened in Salisbury two years ago, um, can be transferred by hostile governments or by rogue scientists at the click of a mouse. Um, and so that threat is, is becoming wider. And we've seen how terrorist groups can pose a threat to us, uh, not only in this country, but in uh, France, Germany, Belgium, Japan, many different parts of the world. Secondly, um, the Prime Minister will be able to point to how new technologies are transforming the battlefield. If you look at the the war in recent weeks between Azerbaijan and Armenia in the South Caucasus, one of the reasons that the Azerbaijanis came out on top quite swiftly was their use of drones uh, to reconnoiter uh, and 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 to the find out information about the the other side's deployments. And when I've talked to people in the services, you know, they have been clear to me that they see drones, they see uh, robots of different different types as being essential if the army, navy, and air force are themselves going to keep up uh, with their responsibility to defend us against uh, a, a potential aggressors who themselves are seizing every advantage they can from from new technologies. So and I don't think it's about interfering, you know, ad hoc around the world. I mean, you know, we've got to be realistic about our place in, in, in the world. We'll, we'll still be a formidable uh, defence power, uh, diplomatic and aid, aid power, um, an important ally for others. But I think that the reality is that we are going to need to act wherever possible in concert with like-minded countries um, 
both uh, other European democracies and uh, other democracies in different parts of the world, countries like Australia, countries like Japan or, or South Korea, as well as, of course, the United States. And, and the United States, you know, with the Biden administration coming in that will value alliances and will value international institutions, will also want to see its allies doing more. Because what Joe Biden is aware of is that there is a very large section of American opinion that basically thinks European countries like France, the UK, Germany have been freeloading on the American taxpayer for their security for, for too long and should be doing more. And I think today's announcement is a pretty powerful gesture that we are uh, shouldering our responsibilities. I, I just want to ask you, you talked about um, drones, robots, there's talk of autonomous weapons. If you want to get mm. properly sort of sci-fi uh, about it all, uh, autonomous weapons that sort of think for themselves... Is that not incredibly risky? Am I being completely ignorant about what we're talking about here? But once you've got robots that think for themselves and can go around wreaking havoc and, uh, you know, firing weapons, is, is that not incredibly dangerous? Oh, it, 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 yes, that is, I mean, that is why um, it is important that if you're developing autonomous weapon systems, you uh, get the technology absolutely right, but also that you have the capacity to think through the ethical element of this. I mean, if you like, it, it, there's, there's an analogy perhaps with a sort of more mundane uh, sort of example, which, which is of, of, of autonomous cars, uh, where you know, people are having to wrestle with the, the, the question as well, if a, a self-drive vehicle you know, sees a pedestrian um, in, their, in, their, in their path, you know, do they, uh, try to swerve to avoid that person. But what if a car is coming in, a, in, in another direction or if swerving off is a threat to the driver and passengers in that autonomous, autonomous vehicle? So, so those ethical questions occur even more sharply when you're talking about weapon systems. And you know, the, 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 the soldiers, sailors and men and women who are, who are sort of involved in this get this. And one of the things we, we do at RUSI, um, the think tank I chair, is to... Um, you look at you know, some of these, the ethical dimension, as well as the the strategic and the technological dimensions of security policy decisions. These yeah. are not easy, but I, I don't think that these are these are dilemmas that we can simply say it's too difficult. We're going to we're going to have to to avoid it. It's how you write the programs, how you write the programs, what assumptions do you build into the programs that that govern the the systems that you have at your disposal. Um, just slightly stepping away from defence, three quick sort of more domestic questions. Well, the first one actually is on foreign aid. Lots of talk this week that uh, the Prime Minister is looking to cut foreign aid temporarily, but then, you know, does that end up becoming permanent? What do you think about that? Is that something the government should be thinking, reducing the 0.7% of GDP spent on foreign aid? I would much prefer we kept to the 0.7%. I mean, I get Rishi Sunak's got an incredibly difficult um sort of set of financial problems that he's having to wrestle with in the, the aftermath of COVID. Um, but the the, not, the, point, the beauty about the 0.7 is that it is self-regulating. If our GDP goes down, as it is it's going to because of COVID this, this year, then 0.7 uh, means less cash than the previous year. Yeah, so, so it's going down anyway. Some spent on development, it's going down anyway. And I do worry also, if, if you're going to cut... Um, 0.7, not only the message that says, but then you get on to the question, well, well which actual programmes do you do you stop spending on? I don't think anybody would really want to stop vaccination, for example, 
God forbid, you know, <laughs> this is the moment with COVID. I'd have thought we want to spend a lot of our development money on getting COVID vaccinations into poor countries because we don't want the disease to become endemic there uh, and then spread from there around the world. Um, we don't want to stop um, ed education and health for women and children in Africa or the poorest parts of Asia. Um, so what do you stop? Well, quite a lot of foreign office spending on poor countries, a lot of diplomatic work, even some defence work is paid for by uh, what's called uh, overseas development assistance, so ODA uh, money, which is what the 0.7% covers. It's more than just the Department for International Development's uh, old uh, budget. Um, so I think yeah, my, my you know, if the government to ask me for advice, I would be saying, look, I, I think this is, um, this is a battle not worth fighting. But having said that, I, I recognise the dilemma that the Chancellor is facing on this yeah. because he's got calls for its increased spending on all sides. But you can't just keep piling up debt indefinitely. OK, two more quick ones. Um, we spent many happy years uh, when you were your minister with you uh, telling me how you were negotiating uh, David Cameron's uh, renegotiated <laughs> membership of the EU and then subsequently discussing Brexit. Um, all eyes now on uh, Boris Johnson. Is he going to get a deal? You're yep. still plugged in in Europe. Is he going to get a deal in the next week or so? I, I'm, I'm still in the, the optimistic camp, think 55-45, uh, 55-45, that there'll be a deal. Uh, my worry is, is just that you run out of time yeah. um, because it, it, it's incredibly complex. And it's if there's a deal, it's going to be translated to five, you know, 20, what's it, 23 different languages and then uh, go through ratification in both um, Brussels and Westminster. So, yeah, next week really is crunch time. But while it will be a thinner deal than personally, I would have I, I, I would have preferred. Um, uh, it is still a lot better than no the deal. no deal. Yeah. Being, being able to avoid customs charges on all our food exports, all our car exports, our aviation exports. I mean, that would be something worth having. Uh, just finally, then, uh, you've been in government when the prime minister's lost two controversial advisers uh, to stage a relaunch. In your time, it was uh, uh, Nick, Timothy and Fiona Hill. Theresa May then tried to relaunch us. Any advice for Boris Johnson on what he should do now? Uh, build up a good new number 10 team as rapidly as possible. Appoint a chief of, of chief of staff who knows that their job is to give you advice that is 100% candid behind the scenes, even if it's unwelcome. It's really important the PM has people around him who will tell him unwelcome truths, honestly, but then are 100% loyal outside the room and, and shut up otherwise. And, and if they become <laughs> the story... That it, it's awful for you guys, the media, but it's bad news for the government when the advisors become the story. Secondly, trust your ministers. You appointed them. If you don't like the ministers, you've got to appoint other ones. But actually trust them to get on with the job and hold them accountable for delivery. And and you know, as COVID permits, spend more time with your MPs as well, because, you know, that's that's important for any PM. That was Sir David Ludington there uh, from the Defence Think Tank. Lucy, thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, let us know what you think of it. You can get in touch with me, matt.chorley at times.radio. And don't forget, you can subscribe to The Times uh, right now. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.